it's very possible, and I would say it's actually very likely that we are going to be very surprised when we get to heaven. The reason, I think that when we go to heaven, we will be surprised because some of the people that we were sure that we would see in heaven are not there. We were so sure that they were wonderful Christians. But in heaven, we will realize that they had fooled us, but not God. And so I think there will be these surprising moments of the people that we expected to see in heaven, but they are not there. But more importantly, I think we will be surprised because there will be people there that we were sure would never make it to heaven. We had given all hopes that they would ever become believers. And when we see them, we will be compelled to say, what? How did you get here? I lost all hope. I never thought in a million years that you will submit your life and your heart to the Lord Jesus and be forgiven and become my brother and my sister. And I think we will be surprised. And after that initial shock wears off, we are going to see and understand, as we have never done before, the wonders of God's redeeming grace that has brought that person, that brother, that sister into heaven. And that is going to stir up our hearts for eternal worship in heaven. Well, Saul is one such case. Because Saul was the least likely person to make it to heaven. You know, it's uh, those of you that remember, um, those of you with, with children, you know, children, they have yearbooks from school, and sometimes they have this little quote, or this, this little, um, I guess it's a popularity contest. The person most likely to become an athlete, the poorest person most likely to become a CEO, et cetera, and et cetera. And if Saul belonged to a rabbinical school that had an yearbook, I think he would have been voted the person least likely to become a Christian. Now, of course, this is not the first time we are hearing about Saul. We've heard about him. Luke has told us about him three times already before. First time was in chapter 7, verse 58. There, the people who are killing Stephen lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. God forbid, God forbid their precious garments got spoiled while their hands were dripping with the blood of an innocent man. And so they gingerly took their garments off and laid it at the feet of Saul, and Saul was the lookout. He was watching over their clothes. And then we next hear about Paul in chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. He wasn't just their mere hired help, an innocent bystander. His heart was in full agreement with what was happening. And then we heard in chapter 8, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, Saul is the wicked man that we read about in Psalm 1. Do you remember Psalm 1? It starts out like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So in that first psalm, we hear about the wicked that who in the end will receive God's just and righteous judgment. And, and if you are the blessed man, if you are the man or a woman who walks in a, a faithfulness to God, you, you do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, you do not stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. And what we see there is that the wicked man goes from bad to worse, and there is a kind of a progression. First, the wicked man follows a sinful counsel. That's what it means when it says he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And after that, he is counted among them, among the wicked, among the sinners, as he stands in the way of sinners. And finally becomes comfortably settled in their way and sits in the seat of scoffers. That's what we see with Saul. He starts out as a spectator in Stephen's execution. And then as he gives an hearty approval, he's an active participant in the persecution against the Christians. And then he finally becomes a leader who outshines others in his zeal against the believers. Saul is that very wicked man who will not be able to stand in judgment, who will one day face God's holy and righteous wrath. And that is what we continue to read here. Saul, still breeding threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You remember how the Christians had left Jerusalem to escape persecution. And Saul wasn't satisfied rounding up the believers in Jerusalem to imprison them. He himself went to the high priest. He took the initiative and he requested the sanction and the authority to bring the believers back to Jerusalem for the sole purpose of oppressing them. Saul, he was the enemy of the Christians and he was the enemy of the gospel. The least likely person to make it to heaven. But we see something strange and beautiful in Paul's encounter with Jesus. Now notice how Saul and his companions were on the way to Damascus. This is a journey about, of about 180 miles. And in those days, it was a journey that took about a week. And every step along the way, Saul was breeding threats and murder against the disciples. In other words, every step along the way to Damascus, he is fuming in his anger against the Christians, scoffing at the defenseless believers, determined to turn their lives upside down. But suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
You see, Saul never thought for one moment that there was anything more to the Christians than their ridiculous beliefs. And to his utter horror and surprise, someone from heaven was now speaking to him about the Christians. Not only so, this heavenly voice took a deep personal interest in the matter. In fact, Saul comes to find out that every injury he inflicted upon the disciples, this heavenly person himself received. And this person considered the pain and the sorrow of his people as his own pain and sorrow. And he says, Why are you persecuting me? And I think what we see here is that Saul was utterly dumbfounded at the question. And he says, Who are you, Lord? And the answer, the answer that shows him that it wasn't the Christians who were out of their minds, who were irrational, who were ridiculous, but it was himself. Because the answer is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, Jesus promised, didn't he, in Matthew chapter 28, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus kept his promise. As the disciples were scattered out of Jerusalem and went everywhere proclaiming the gospel, Jesus was with his disciples as they were abused, as they were imprisoned, and even as they died. Jesus promised, and he kept his promise. And there is a very illuminating passage in Matthew chapter 25 that shows us this dynamic from a slightly different angle. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about the final day of judgment and how the Lord, he comes and he will separate the sheep from the goats. The goats are those who had called on the name of the Lord, but in vain. They professed faith with their mouths and with the, with the words, but they were not really serving the Lord. But uh, the Lord addresses the sheep, the righteous ones, and he says this to them. Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 and following. He says to them, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the people who are hearing this, they're just utterly surprised. And the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when did we ever do this to you? When did we ever see you hungry and give you food? When did we ever see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we ever see you in prison to visit you in prison? And the king, king answers them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. You know, that's what Jesus said. And do you see that here? As Paul was persecuting the believers, Jesus says, you are persecuting me. 
And he says, as he addresses the faithful, righteous ones who, for the sake of their love for the Lord and Jesus, they, they showed compassion and kindness to the suffering people. Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was imprisoned and you came and comforted me. When did we ever do this to you? All that you did because you love me to the least of these my brothers you did to me. You did for me. Do you see how wonderfully and intimately the Lord Jesus binds himself to his people so that he considers the pain and the sorrow of his people as his own pain and sorrow. And he considers the kindness, the merciful deeds done to his people as deeds done to him, and he becomes their debtor. You know, I know many of you do that, actually. Many of you, you visit those who are ill, who are bedridden. You visit them, you show them compassion and kindness, you share your love with them. And oftentimes, they're in no position to even understand the kind of sacrifices you're making. And sometimes they don't have the capacity to, to even thank you properly. But, you know, as you visit them, as you show them love and mercy, understand this, Jesus sees what you are doing. And Jesus says to you, you are doing that for me. You are doing that to me. So saints, keep that up. Because that is the Lord and the Master that we serve. You know, isn't it interesting? Saul no doubt thought that the disciples were out of their mind for loving Jesus. That they loved Jesus to the extent that they were willing to give up their lives for him. But what we see here is that they loved Jesus because Jesus first loved them. Jesus bound himself to his disciples and his loyalty to his people is such that he rejoices over our joy. And he grieves over our pain. And what that means is that the Saul, the persecutor, is not merely the enemy of Christians and the gospel, but he is the enemy of Christ. But this is the wondrous, beautiful thing. Against every expectation and against every logic, Jesus gives mercy to the man who had pursued him and his bride to death. And that brings us to a surprising and beautiful conversion. Saul's conversion is God's grace breaking through the hardened heart of a sinner, God's grace breaking into the damned soul of a sinner. You know, there is a popular narrative that we often run into that says that, that we 
achieve conversion when we, with our free will, choose God. One reading of this passage disproves that, doesn't it? Because Saul, who who had left Jerusalem with the sole purpose and intent to persecute Christians, he did not use his free will on the way to persecute the Christians to become a Christian. Do you see? He had made his choices freely, without compulsion. He took the initiative and went to the high priest to receive the sanction and the authority to do harm the believers. His choices were against God and his gospel. And Saul, his will was in sin's unbreakable grips. But Saul was rescued, not because Saul changed his mind, but because Jesus quite literally knocked him down to the ground. Jesus, he drew near him and gave him a new heart. And along with a new heart, Jesus called him to a new and a better life. And so Saul encounters the risen Lord Jesus, and he is unable to see And it seems to me that is so fitting, isn't it? This is a man who took pride in being able to perceive and see better than other people. And what justice that when he encounters encounters the Lord, he is left utterly incapable. And he is in utter shock. This uh, This is a traumatic experience for him. For three days, he cannot eat or drink. And he is, no doubt, evaluating his entire life in those three days. Running through every piece of scriptures he thought he had understood, but have come to realize that he didn't understand anything. He was so sure that he knew what God's plan was, only to realize that he was so far from him. And just as he is being utterly broken to pieces, the Lord sends message and word to Ananias. Ananias, go. And Ananias responds to the Lord's command with an understandable reservation. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And Jesus answers, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. As a self-respecting Pharisee, Saul would have had no problem going to the kings and the children of Israel. But the real kicker is that Jesus is commissioning Saul to go to the Gentiles. And the wonder is that Saul had devoted himself to stamping out the gospel. Now God will use him to proclaim the gospel to the world. And so God rescues a man who was once devoted to sin to serve the kingdom of Satan. And he makes him a servant of God's kingdom 
to proclaim the way that he had once oppressed. You know, this is God's gracious and undeserved gift. Jesus does not merely save you that you may continue to live the life that you had lived, but he saves you in order to redeem. He saves you in order to turn you around. He saves you in order not so much to turn your life upside down, but but to put your life right side up. You know, I have met so many people in my lifetime who tell me that they are Christians because at some point in their past, they went to a meeting and they said a sinner's prayer as if it's a magic spell. You know, I said a sinner's prayer. I know I'm going to heaven. You know, far before me to say that I can, I can tell or discern what is in a person's heart, but you know, sometimes the fruit are evident. I've had so many conversations where people tell me, you know, I said a sinner's prayer, I'm going to heaven, but I look at them and I'm saying, no fruit of faith, but only the all too evident signs of rebellion and stubbornness and hardened hearts. And I told them, you cannot have Jesus as your Savior when He is not your Lord. You know, that's what Jesus is doing here with Saul. He does not merely say, all your sins are forgiven. Let's not talk about them anymore. But Jesus says to him, you are forgiven. Now you will serve me. Your life was once dedicated and devoted to the kingdom of Satan. But now your life is mine. If I'm to be your Savior, I must also be your Lord. And that's grace. And that's a gift. Do you know that that is also true of you? You cannot say that you are a believer, that Jesus is your Savior, unless your life has been turned around. Now, certainly, it is not our turning our life around that makes us Christians. But when Jesus rescues, he redeems. He reorients and repurposes our lives. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Saul. And lastly, as Jesus commissions Ananias to go to Saul, he says, For he is a chosen instrument of mine, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You know, we think suffering is a punishment, don't we? And we almost want to say or feel like that this is karma for Saul. You see, he made Christians suffer. Now, God's making him suffer. That's why Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Actually, that's not at all what's being said here. Far from it. You see, we heard what Jesus said to Saul. As he, as Saul was persecuting the believers, Jesus was saying to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And because that is in the background, we can never think punishment, or we can never think suffering as a punishment. 
Rather, as Jesus sends Saul with the gospel, he will go with Saul with the same loyal love. When Saul suffers abuse, when he is rejected, and when he is persecuted for Christ's sake, Jesus will be there with him, bearing his sorrow, bearing his pain every step along the way. And Jesus will be with him all the way to heaven. Suffering is not punishment. Inasmuch as Jesus shares in our sorrow and our pain and our griefs, we who are united to Christ, we experience suffering in life so that we also might participate in Christ's sufferings. You know, there's really no other way around it. If we are going to have a resurrection like His, we are also going to have a life and death like His. Suffering is not a punishment from God, but it is our partnership in what Jesus has endured for us. And I want you to know, loved ones, when Jesus says here about Saul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It is not Jesus punishing him, but it is an invitation. Just as Jesus binds himself to Saul, so Saul will also bind his heart and life to Jesus. And Jesus is going to be with him all the way to heaven. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is many years after this conversion, uh, Saul, or Paul, at the same name, uh, if, if you are familiar with how people who live in multiple cultures live, you, know, you, you get this, don't you? People who live in multicultural societies, they often have uh, more than one name. I have my Korean name, as well as my American name, and you are familiar with that, I'm sure. So it's not that there's something spiritual about Saul becoming Paul. Saul is his Jewish Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. Paul, it writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, reflecting upon his, about his conversion, he says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is why Saul's conversion is all about you and me. As we see God's amazing grace for Saul, we realize that though we, in our sin, we are hopelessly separated from God, the moment we come to Jesus for forgiveness and grace, we are forgiven. And that also gives us hope, doesn't it? Most of us, we have some people in our lives who do not know the Lord, and for years we have prayed for them. For years we have argued with them, fought with them, tried to convince them to the best of our abilities, but they will not believe so much so that you are beginning to lose hope. 
but because Jesus is such a redeemer, we find the hope that even though when we judge people to be hopeless, it is not hopeless for God. And the wonderful promise here is that no matter how we have stumbled and no matter how much we have failed, the moment we come to him, we are forgiven, we are accepted. So let me rephrase my initial statement earlier when I said in heaven, we are going to be surprised because in heaven, we are going to see some people that we never thought would make it to heaven. And I still believe that's true. I think it's going to be glorious. But more than that, what is going to surprise us more in heaven is that in heaven, we will finally see, truly for the first time ever, how undeserving we are to be in heaven. And in heaven, we are going to say, is it true that Jesus loved me with all my sins with all my failures with all my rebellion with all my foolishness the grace of the Lord Jesus was greater than my sins can it be true and that is going to fill our souls with worship for eternity what a glorious day that will be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show us here your power to save and to redeem, to redirect and repurpose lost souls and ruined lives so that in the Lord Jesus Christ, all that is broken is made whole and lost people find hope. So, Father, we pray that you will remind us of this truth that in our day-to-day -day struggles with sin or in our grief and sorrow over those that do not believe, keep us from losing our heart, but to find our comfort and strength in your Son, in his powerful grace, in his cross, and in his empty tomb. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.